Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Good morning. So we're in a series on the book of Colossians. And today we're going to be picking up where Pastor Ashwin left off last week and examining Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to the end of the chapter. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me in reading a portion of our scripture lesson today. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Let us pray. Again, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would open our minds to help us to understand what you're saying here. And even more than that, Lord, once we hear from you, give us the courage to step out and to do what you're calling us to do. We commit all of this to you in prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm sure that you will agree with me that one of the great challenges that we face in life is keeping physically fit. Most of us want to take care of our, our health. The problem is, what is the best way to stay physically fit? Most of us have seen the commercials or the infomercials on television or online in which a fitness guru uh, presents a powerful case for why his fitness and nutrition program is not only easier and quicker, but far more effective than anything else on the market in achieving the fitness results that you're after. The presentation typically includes endorsements by doctors and other health professionals and living testimonials of real people whose lives and fitness has been dramatically changed because of the special knowledge of this particular fitness guru who claims to have put it together the right combination of exercises and nutrition plans. So let's say that you cave in and you buy the program. You faithfully follow it for the first week and somewhat faithfully after that. Three months later, you're seeing some results, but nowhere near the results 
of those that you remember seeing on television when you bought the program, and you're getting just a bit discouraged. Six months later, on one miserable Monday morning, you stop halfway through your workout to catch your breath, have some water and a piece of cheesecake. <laughs> and as you surf through the channels, you come upon yet another fitness guru who claims her fitness program is far superior to any other program on the market because she has come up with a revolutionary new workout routine and nutritional plan that she boldly promises with money-back guarantee. If you buy and use her program for just 30 days, you will have dramatic results in far less time and with far less effort. And you are ever so tempted to pack up that old program, put it in storage along with the seven other ones that you have there, and buy a new and improved program. In that moment, the question that you're wrestling with is, who will I trust to guide me for my physical fitness? Now, physical fitness is one thing. But in life, we also face similar question in the area of our spiritual lives and our spiritual fitness. Who will I trust to guide me in this life and to prepare me for the next life? Some 2,000 years ago, a number of people in the city of Colossae, they heard the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they put their trust in him. They believed him. Under the leadership of Epaphras, they formed a church committed to loving God, loving one another, and loving and serving their community together, as Christ had called them to. However, over time, some spiritual gurus came along, and they said, you know, Jesus is okay. But if you really are going to get to the next level spiritually, Jesus isn't enough. You need Jesus plus some additional special knowledge, some additional special disciplines, and some additional special experiences. Now, when the Apostle Paul heard about this, the Spirit of God prompted him to write a letter to the believers of the church at Colossae, which we have included here in our scripture, our scriptures. And as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, in chapter 1, verse 15 and on, Paul spells out in no uncertain terms that Jesus is enough. That he is the invisible God who out of love for us became visible. Became fully human. Not only to identify with us, and to show us who God is, but also to die for us and to pay for our sins against a holy God. Jesus is not someone God created, as some were claiming. No, writes Paul, Jesus is God who created the universe. He is the Lord of the church. He's the Savior and Lord of the world. Which brings us to verse 6 here in chapter 2. Really the key verse of this section of scripture. Paul writes, So then, 
Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Paul says, so then, based on who Christ is, based on what you know Christ has done for you, live in him. Trust him. Not only to redeem you and give you eternal life, but to guide you and to empower you to live a full and satisfying life in this life here on earth. He's pleading with these relatively new believers to understand that they are complete in Christ. They don't need anything or anyone else. He says, continue to live your lives in him. He is enough. Don't buy into the lies of those spiritual gurus telling you that you need more than Jesus to experience life to the full. Now, church, this issue continues to be alive and well today. And this is how it typically surfaces. Remember the joy you felt when you first put your trust in Christ? How light you felt spiritually when you realized that you were forgiven through the grace of Jesus Christ? Do you remember the excitement that you felt when you realized that you were a friend of Jesus? That he is in you? That you can interact with him? You can ask him for help and wisdom and guidance at any time? Now you see, what can happen is over time, the newness of all of that wears off. The same way that romance in marriage tends to wear off over time. It's kind of a reality. Sometimes for various reasons, there are seasons where we go through a bit of a spiritual slump. Now most of the time, it happens because we've allowed other things or other people to distract us, to take our focus off the Lord and onto lesser things, temporary things, a certain relationship or the acquisition of something or success. But instead of just acknowledging that that's taken place and, and making the necessary course correction, sometimes we dial into teaching as we're surfing through our television sets. Teaching that seeks to convince us that we need something new. That we need something more than just Jesus. Oh, and trust me, you know, many times these seductive voices are, are ever so subtle. In fact, there's always an aspect of truth to them or else you wouldn't even give them a second thought. Sometimes they even seem very centered on the scriptures. But they're just off enough to move our focus away from Christ to something else. And so in verse 8, Paul gives us this warning. See to it that no one takes you captive. What a graphic term. He's really saying that no one kidnaps you. 
through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, to be clear, Paul isn't rejecting the study of philosophy here. He's not saying Christians should avoid critical thinking or the pursuit of truth. He's really saying, don't let anyone spiritually kidnap you, pull you away from the freedom that you have in Christ, and pull you into a philosophy or a religion, because that word philosophy is probably best translated religion, pull you into a religion that may promise something more, but in reality will pull you back into spiritual bondage and slavery. And here in chapter 2, Paul describes several hollow and deceptive philosophies or religions that have the potential of killing our spiritual growth and our freedom in Christ. We're just going to look at two of them today. The first deception that can kill our spiritual growth and freedom in Christ is the religion of special knowledge. As we already pointed out, the the religion of Gnosticism was alive and well in that day. Now, most of us know what an agnostic is. An agnostic is someone who doesn't know. Someone, if you talk to him about, do you believe in God, an agnostic would say to you, I don't know if there is a God. Well, an agnostic is the opposite of an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who claims to know. Someone whose mission in life is the acquisition of knowledge and is really quite proud of the knowledge and is always seeking more knowledge for knowledge's sake. Not wisdom necessarily, but knowledge. Because they see it as a leverage. They see it as a a tool for intimidation and control. And in the church at Colossae, the Gnostics used their knowledge to attempt to spiritually intimidate the Christians who had a simple faith in Jesus Christ. And they would say, or they would imply something like, well, you know, if you knew what we know, if you weren't so naive, you would realize that Jesus is enough, that Jesus can't meet all of your needs. You need more insight. You need more knowledge like we have. And until you have it, you know, you're you're really missing it. And even though the Gnostics had nothing better to offer in reality, they used the knowledge card to chip away the believer's trust and confidence in Christ. So how is this showing up today? Well, it's showing up all over the place. In our media, our social media, at our university campuses. Highly educated people or people quoting highly educated people take issue with the Christian faith. Often suggesting that knowledgeable people, intelligent people, know that we're not created by some God. Intelligent people know that we're the product of time, chance, and matter. Knowledgeable people know, they say, that truth is relative. There's no such thing as objective truth. Come on. 
if there's a God, only the naive would believe that there's only one way to God. There's many ways to God. A couple of years ago, a bright young woman from our church approached me after a service and told me about a class that she was taking at the University of Calgary and how her professor took every opportunity he had in almost every class with great delight in attacking the Christian faith. No other faith, mind you, but boy, loved to hit the Christians. With tears streaming down her face, she said, the professor leaves you feeling that if you are a Christian, if you believe there is a God, that the Bible is true, and that Jesus is anything more than a man, you are a moron. You're a simpleton. Now, friends, I know not every professor in our secular universities is like this. But the reality is there are a growing number of people who embrace a similar perspective and are using the knowledge card to attempt to intimidate Christians. To weaken their faith in Christ. To even have them get to a place where they turn away from Christ. I meet parents all the time who are heartbroken over one or more of their children who came out of university denying all that they once believed. Who no longer believe Jesus is Lord. Oh, they'll say, yeah, he's a, he's a good man. You know, did some good things. And you know what? If, he, if he's someone that, you know, you need to hang on to, well, you just go ahead and do that, but I'm not there. Now, sadly, those who use the special knowledge card to destroy the Christian faith in the lives of people really have nothing better to offer. Years ago, I invited a group of highly educated men, doctors, lawyers, geologists, who weren't Christians, pretty skeptical, to explore the evidence for the Christian faith. And one of the fellows who ultimately put his trust in Christ said to me, you know what, all through university, I was given reasons not to believe. I was never once given any reason, any good reason to believe. I didn't know that this compelling evidence that we've just gone through even existed. And friends, you know, his comment was one of the reasons that led me to do the Why Believe series. To help equip us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. Parents, we need to be wrestling with these issues ourselves and introducing our children to the compelling evidence for the Christian faith and for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. When our kids are, are young, yes, at that point we just communicate what the Bible says, but as they get older, you will find, if you haven't already, that they're going to start asking questions about why do we believe what we believe? And we need to be prepared to give an answer to them or at least be willing to find the answers together with them. So when a professor or a friend or a coworker challenges their faith in Christ, they're going to be prepared to give an answer or at the very least, 
their faith won't be shattered. Because they've never explored the why. And they have no convictions, no roots to their faith. This is serious business. The stakes are enormous. We need to be vigilant in this and face this head on. We need to start turning televisions off and having more discussions with, in our families about stuff we believe and why we believe it. When you watch a movie with your family and the plot attacks or chips away at one or more of our core beliefs and values as Christians, don't let it slide. At the end of a movie, point out the lie. Point out the falsehood that was communicated. And then ask them, what do they think Jesus would say about that? Or ask them, what, what does the Bible say about that? And journey with them to find answers to that. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. That's the first deception that can kill our spiritual growth, our freedom in Christ, a religion of special knowledge. A second deception is the religion of special behaviors. Look at verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul is talking about legalism here. Legalism is really any attempt to earn God's favor through our own efforts. Verse 10 tells us how people can become legalists. Look at what it says. They have lost connection with the head. Who's that? That's Jesus. For whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. The legalists are those who have lost connection with Christ, the head. Instead of having an ongoing, vibrant, daily, and growing friendship with Jesus, the legalist in his own strength attempts to replace a relationship with Jesus with rituals and behaviors and rules that he believes are going to be pleasing to Christ. And we do that because sometimes we think it's easier. You know, relationships take work. You know, it's like a relationship with your spouse. That takes work. You know, sometimes it'd just be easier. You know, tell me what you want. I'll do it. And we do that spiritually. The legalist says to himself, this is how I will please God. By keeping all these behaviors, these rituals, and these rules. Now, let me be very clear about something. The Bible's very clear on a number of things like you shall not lie you shall not kill you shall not envy you shall not be sexually immoral in fact look at Colossians 3 verse 1 since then you have been raised with Christ set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God 
Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The Bible very clearly communicates some things, some commands, some precepts, some principles that Jesus sincerely wants us to follow. A legalist is not someone who loves Jesus and sincerely wants to follow the things that the Bible communicates clearly. No, a legalist is someone who replaces an intimate growing relationship with Jesus with a religion of man-made rules and behaviors and rituals. In the early church, some believers attempted to please God by abstaining from certain foods and from abstaining from drinking certain drinks. Some attempted to please God by observing certain religious festivals and by worshiping God on the Sabbath or on Saturday. Now, as we'll see, that there's nothing wrong with having convictions like this. The problem comes when we believe our convictions on certain things should be everyone's convictions. In other words, legalism often turns into judgmentalism. You see, if I'm defining my Christian faith on the basis of a list of man-made rules that I've made up, and I see you doing something that I don't do, I'm going to be tempted to judge you and assume that you aren't a true Christian, or at least not a very good one. And see, this happened in the early church. I mean, all kinds of disputes erupted over what a, f- a, devo- a fully devoted follower of Christ ate and drank and the religious festivals they attended and so forth. And these kind of disputes have continued down through church history right up to our present day. Lord knows most of us could benefit greatly from eating healthier foods. Because there were Christians in the early church who said, you know, you should only eat vegetables. Lord knows we could do with more vegetables. Less meat, coffee, and soft drinks. But in verse 22, Paul says, these rules are man-made. They're destined to perish. You know, the generations go and things that were a big deal a generation ago just aren't a big deal and pretty much everyone realizes they shouldn't have been a big deal. The same is true with respect to the celebration of days. Even today there are those who believe the sign of spiritual authenticity is which day of the week you worship on. Some say it must be Saturday. Because it's the Sabbath, and Jesus observed the Sabbath. Others say it must be Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. The early Christians celebrated and worshipped on the Lord's Day. When we started our Saturday night service, someone said to me, well, Saturday's not the Sabbath. And I said, well, actually, Saturday is the Sabbath. But we're free as Christians to worship on every day. And every day is holy to the Lord. Look what Romans 14.5 says. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Friends, in Christ, 
Every day is the Lord's day, amen? In Christ, every day is a good day to tell Jesus you love him and to worship Jesus by serving him and others. I mean, you realize, do you not, that our gathering here in worship is only one way to worship God. When we serve others, when we serve God during the week, we're worshiping him. You know, some people get in a tizzy over the date of Christmas and the date of Christ's resurrection. Some say, you know, man, you know, those are pagan holidays and all the rest of it. And those can be interesting studies and discussions, but it's not the date that's so important. What's important is what we're celebrating on those days. The coming of our Lord, the death and resurrection of our Lord, that's what matters. But you see, all down through history, people in entire church denominations have had their own lists of what a true Christian looks like and made it the test of their faith. You know, if you don't drink coffee, don't do this and that, you know, that's a test that you're a true Christian. I was thinking with one of our, I was talking with one of our seniors a while ago, and he mentioned that about 50 years ago, if you wore lipstick and put on makeup, if you went to the stampede, your Christianity was in question. I remember growing up in the hippie era, I had pretty long hair. <laughs> the guy that started clapping doesn't have any hair. <laughs> Anyways, my granddad, he offered to pay me 300 bucks. Now, in today's dollar value, that'd be like 3,000 bucks for me to get my hair cut. And I was okay with that because, you know, my granddad, he loved me, and he was just telling me he had a preference, and it was that my hair be shorter. It'd be more like it is now. But you know what bothered me? It wasn't my granddad's preference. What bothered me was the older saint who came up to me and essentially told me that I wasn't a Christian because of the length of my hair. And some of the other well-meaning Christians who just by the way they looked at me were communicating the same message. Why is it that sometimes churches are just so cold and mean? It's because of these man-made rules. Now, I know you're sitting there and saying, you know, well, Pastor... Um, you know, are you going to touch on a whole lot of other areas that are controversial and so forth? Well, I want to respect those of you who like short sermons, so we'll just carry on. You know, friends, I say it again. There are commands, principles, and precepts in the Scriptures that God calls us to obey. Not because He wants to make our life miserable, but because He loves us and He has our best interests at heart. Even his negative commands are given for a positive reason. Paul's not referring to that in his teaching here. He's referring to us having free or being free from human rules. He's concerned that nothing would distract us from growing closer to the Lord. That nothing would take the place of a closer walk with Jesus. Particularly a bunch of man-made rules. 
And parents, it is so important that we are open with our kids about the convictions that we have. Particularly the reason for the, the, these convictions. I mean, if you have a conviction regarding drinking alcohol, and I want to be clear, drinking alcohol to excess is a sin. That's what the Bible says. But if you have a conviction, and I'll just state it, it's my conviction, okay? This is a conviction I have. That you're not going to drink alcohol because you see its destructiveness in people's lives and families. And you don't want anyone to start down the path of drinking because they saw you drinking. Then explain that conviction to your children. If you have a conviction about some other thing, explain it to your children. Don't just say, don't do it. We have all kinds of families and children who are no longer part of the church because what we said is don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Well, why? Don't ask any questions. Just do it. And people soon came to the conclusion that the Christian faith is just basically a bunch of do's and don'ts. Don't see a lot of joy in mom and dad. Don't see a lot of joy in the church. Everybody's looking, oh man, oh boy, look at the length of that hair. Mm-hmm. When we put our trust in Christ, we have a sincere desire to want to know him and to follow him. We're encouraged to be baptized, to read the scriptures, to pray to attend worship services, to give, to be in community with other Christians. But we do not do these things to somehow prove we love Jesus. We do them because we love Jesus. That makes all the difference. The goal of reading the Bible is not to check it off. Okay, did that for today. It isn't to get more head knowledge so that I can intimidate someone else with the knowledge that I have. No, it's just simply to know Jesus better. To hear from him. His direction for my life, his promises for my life. Legalism promises maturity, but it leads to exhaustion. False guilt to judgmentalism, division, conflict, and outright nastiness. Sometimes someone defined a legalist as a person who's afraid that someone somewhere, somehow is going to enjoy their Christian faith. (laughs) My, wouldn't that be awful? I'm reminded of the old saying that says it so well, in the essentials, the things that are clear in Scripture... Let's have unity. In the non-essentials, let's extend liberty to each other. Let's extend freedom to each other and not judge each other. In all things, let's love each other. Paul calls us back to Christ, to having a meaningful relationship with him, realizing that Christ is all that we need. He's reminding us here, don't settle for less. 
Don't settle for Jesus plus special knowledge or Jesus plus special behaviors and rules and and rituals. In verse 17, Paul writes, these are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I heard someone explain it this way. Let's say that you're engaged and and because of work, you're separated from your fiance for several months and you're unable to communicate during this time. Every evening you sit at the edge of your bed looking at the picture of your fiance and you say this, oh, I love you so much. Oh, I miss you so much. Oh, I wish you were here. Night after night, you go through this ritual Because that little picture reminds you of the love you have for your fiancé and the hope of seeing him or her again. But then there's a surprise knock at the door. You open the door and it's your fiancé. So what do you do? Suppose you go back to the edge of your bed and pull out that little picture. And you say, oh, I love you so much. Oh, I miss you so much. Oh, I wish you were here. You do that. Well, let's not talk about what might happen next. (laughs) No, you embrace your fiancé. But you see, why would you hold on to that picture, the shadow Why would you go through that ritual again if the reality, the real person is standing right there in front of you? And what Paul is saying here is is that you need to understand that all those Old Testament diets and those Old Testament festivals and those Old Testament Sabbath days were all there to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. They were a shadow of what was to come. But here's the thing, Jesus has come. And in the same way we no longer need to look at the picture of our fiancé every night, we're free from the Old Testament rituals and festivals and diets and Sabbath laws because our ultimate rest, which is what the Sabbath is all about, our ultimate rest is Jesus and he has come. I'll close with this. Pastor Gene Apple tells the story of one of his friends who came to faith in Christ after being part of a religious tradition that follows all kinds of religious rules and ceremonies and rituals. And Gene says it was so moving to see his friend finally understand and finally get the amazing grace of Christ and that Christ is all we need. And shortly after putting his trust in Christ, a couple of people came knocking at his door one day from a religious group that believes that salvation is Jesus plus an assortment of other things, including knocking on doors. And when he opened the door, they asked him, do you know why we're here? And most of us at that point would quickly say, yeah, no thanks, and close the door. But Gene's friend, this relatively new Christian, He said, I know exactly why you're here. You're here because there's a big hole in your heart. And you're trying to fill it by knocking on doors. 
And God wanted you to come to my door today so I could tell you that Jesus is all that you need. Because he did something amazing for you and me on the cross that you can never do for yourself. You know, friends, Jesus came to set us free from our sins and our regrets. He came to set us free from a life of trying to pay for our sins, free from man-made rules, free from us trying to be good enough to somehow receive and to get his approval and his love and his acceptance. Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Friends, enjoy your freedom in Christ. But please, don't flaunt it. Please, don't abuse your freedom. Don't use your freedom to cause somebody else to stumble. Don't ridicule those who have different convictions than you do. But having said that, remember that Christ is all that you need. He is Lord. And He is more than enough. Don't settle for anything less. I just love the way that um, someone put this. Freedom is like a tree planted by the water. Uprooted, it is free only to die. Did you get that? To be really free, it has to remain attached to something life-giving. And friends, that is Jesus, who said, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever remains in me will live. Would you please stand with me? take a moment and let's ask those two questions Lord what are you saying to me and Lord what is it that you want me to do about it may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.